Welcome among the released. A while ago, I did an episode called The New Normal. It turns out it was not The New Normal. Or maybe is it? But here I am again recording outdoor with I have a uh, bottle of disinfectant I sprayed on my microphone. But anyway, none of that matters, really. I am sitting today with... Sean Smith. Hello, Sean. And the sun is coming. I've been in the cold here typing a game on my phone, but now you arrive and the, the sun is much better. The wind is still here, but the sun at least is nice. It's much alright. Keep it that closer so we don't hear too much of the wind once <laughs> uh, I post-process things. But who are you? I am a writer, a magician, and a games designer, I suppose. I have been a teacher. I spent about 10 years teaching English, so mostly getting people to think about stories and how that influences themselves. But all in all, I just quite like the idea of pulling people together to give them weird, weird different memories. So they're like a sense of, oh, can you remember that time we did this? And I like to be the catalyst for that. So magician, is that a magician like wizard like Alan Moore or is it illusionist like Job in uh, Arrested Development? So a bit of both. Okay. Um, I mean, more of, more of the stuff that would have me burned by the church years ago would have been, I mean, more of that is just... Uh, almost like reflective practice rather than something else so like I'm, I'm quite a fan of tarot cards i've got a few different ones mostly because they're ugly and beautiful pieces of art rather than any like belief in what happens with it but actually that came through doing stage magic so when i was 10 my granddad had a magazine within the middle of his daily mail which unfortunate at the time and it was how to learn a card trick right in the center of it and as a child i would read everything i could get my hands on and so i read that and suddenly discovered an entire new shelf in the library to find with that full of books and so that's really kind of influenced a lot of what i've been doing over down like almost like 20 like over 20 years that i've been doing magic in various ways and conveniently because the first time i started performing it was probably about seven or eight years after I'd started learning it, I'd gone past the point of actually being quite bad and people expecting to go, oh, well, well done. Uh, so, yeah. Actually, we are in Ernil and there's the Stitch Magic Shop uh, mm. in Moon Lane. I've ordered from it before. I've never actually turned up. And that's often because magic shops are either very, very welcoming or incredibly standoffish. And <laughs> yeah, unless that's... you drop the right name, people are like, oh, we don't know who you are. I never dared enter the place because it's got this yeah I mean it's, it's kind of the charm and the point where it's got this aura of mystery and you're like do I want to enter this uh, sort of sanctum place but uh, as a kid uh, yeah it would have driven me crazy uh, mm. just to have this place uh, across the street there's also a very nice one I walked in front of towards Clerkenwell seems quite yes. old and quite large um, that one is I think it's called International Magic Yes, um, I think and that's the one, yeah. Like, they will regularly be putting on lectures as well. Back in the before times, they would rent out, like, the top room above an old Italian restaurant. And when, like, during the interval, you'd go down after you'd seen some of the lecture, and there'd be all of these incredibly old Italian men playing cards silently in a bar. And so, yeah, they are a very good shop. There's another one in Charing Cross called Davenport's, which almost looks like you're trying to have to go through the matrix to get to it because it's quite a weird unfortunate space we had a bit of discussion about those topics with she's not doing any stage magic 
as far as I'm uh, aware, but Virginia Page from Modifius. Ah, I didn't know that. She's interested in those topics as well. Mm. Stage magic, I find it interesting because I sometimes take it as an example when I have discussion. I'm sort of... I mean, it's just a view. I don't think it's something we should apply to everyone, but mm. I find there should be more self-awareness regarding connection between game mastering and stage magic in the sense that especially when there's discussion about fumbling dice and this sort of mm. things and quantum auguring things not against the players but for the players yeah. I always say I expect my game master to sort of fumble or change things around mm. but I don't want to be aware of it yeah. and a lot of people are shocked by this idea especially in, in the French RPG scene they're like oh they call that illusionism like <laughs> as a bad thing and I say but when you go see a stage magician you know it's an illusion yes yeah and you accept it and if you can blatantly see the illusion you are disappointed but you don't resent no. the stage magician for air quote tricking you it's kind of the whole point of the performance you're looking for the out answer but you don't want to find the answer yeah. you want to feel that you could have done if you were better I think, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of crossover with... There's a concept in magic that's only really been written about within the last 50 years. There's a, there's a guy called Darwin Ortiz who writes about this quite often. And it's the idea of like the silent script, which is what you think you are doing when you aren't actually really doing something. So like there's a, like a very standard coin vanish where you're holding a coin in one hand, you pretend to pick it up, and then it vanishes from the hand you picked it up from one part of your brain is knowing what you're doing but you're also having to remember the falsehood of it at the same time and be aware <laughs> of both of those things because if you're not following like the silent script which you're not saying which is that there is now a coin in my hand which is literally melting and I can feel the heat of it against my skin you never speak that to the people that are watching but if you don't follow that same like thought process of I believe in the lie I'm telling then it just doesn't feel right from an audience and I really think that a lot more, especially a lot more like traditional games where you've got like a games master, a referee, and a number of players could really benefit from that double track of thinking, here's what the story's saying, and here are the hidden things that I don't need to show anybody about. Especially with like a lot of random encounter tables that you get within like the OSR scene where there's all these things that are happening in the background. You don't need to know where all of the orcs are at any time. You just need to know that there's a chance that D10 orcs might turn up every 30 seconds. Our traditional question at the show is, how would you describe what is a tabletop role-playing game to someone who has no clue about it? Well, I actually had quite a bit of experience doing that, especially when... So my the last school that I was working at, I established like a Dungeons & Dragons club because you want the brand name when you're dealing with 12-year-olds. Typically, when I was either asked by some of the students or by other like, members of staff I was working with, I eventually boiled down to describing it as it's essentially an improvised radio play where we are the only audience. And that's pretty much how I tend to encapsulate it. If then people are wanting to ask extra questions, I might talk about the sort of like how the dice work or what sorts of things you might be doing. But for the most part, I think that summarizes enough of how... Because I think so much of tabletop gaming is about in the culture of how it is that it's played rather than what the outcome is. And a lot of the descriptions is, could you imagine doing this rather than if you, you could see this in a pub and you could know what it is 
which I think is probably more helpful for people to understand if they just don't have any context already. See me here, the willow tree, standing crooked in a breeze, easily swayed, easily pleased, my foliage ruffled, tangled discuss how you were introduced to stage magic mm. were you introduced to tabletop roping games also through uh, an article in the daily mirror no no not this case but it was about the same time so my route in pretty much was through the fighting fantasy game books so um when i was 10 my best friend ed watling brought in a copy of the warlock of firetop mountain to school and we would sit around on the picnic tables at lunch and at break time trying to read through this book and try to get to the end and we would always die at the vampire <laughs> um, which I've now since learned doesn't even have to be done if you if in fact if you're fighting the vampire you're going the wrong way and so I started collecting those eventually got to the point where I then was aware of more of what actually was happening and like what they were based on but that wasn't for oh God, probably about six or seven years 
and then really only like I did a bit of playing of Dungeons and Dragons when I was 15 and then mostly kind of like had a relatively large gap with it until I became an adult in the legal sense and started to be fair the, the very first game I was regularly playing was one that I'd made up probably about five years previously with my friend before I even went off to university but I then actually in the interim worked out how maths worked well enough so that it stopped it being something impossibly bad and actually behaved as a as a reasonable system and then from there I realized it was quite a nice output for like creativity and one of the I said at the beginning that was like state like stage magician games designer and writer each one of those tends to be as a way of avoiding having to do the other two and so it's it's tactical procrastination I think in that way that's a good name for that tactical procrastination because yeah as you found me I was working on the, the design of my second game which is a way of stopping to worry about the first one which I ended to uh, Francita Soto who, who's doing the graphic design oh, and amazing yeah I'm sure she's doing an amazing work but I tend to be micro managing things or yep. anxiety prone so having something else to work on And even game design is a way for me to distract myself from working on the podcast, which I still love, but at some point I get tired of. Mm, mm. And the podcast and everything I do in the hobby is a distraction for my other creative endeavor, which is work, architecture and urban design, but then you're not in control of anything. Yeah. You need to, I don't know, like sharks, you know, they're all saying that you, mm. they cannot stop you, so you need to go forward towards something. I do actually think that's quite a healthy process as well because you've built in a habit to recognize when there's certain directions that you can't push in or you just don't either don't have the capacity or need to wait wait I'm very bad at waiting if you can instead just like move your focus to something different that means that you just you still get to like maintain that quite like happy comfortable thing I often see creativity and the act of producing things being described as like as habitual and it is very much the sense of if you're doing it then it's going to make it slightly easier for you and if you just have a big break well there's sometimes you need to relax and to rest but you fall out of the habit of what it was that you were kind of getting the habit of and being used to in the same way the whole like creativity is like any other muscle it's quite funny one of the many things i do i tend to do too many things they say that of architects is that an architect is someone who knows a lot about different stuff at the beginning of their career and they end up their career uh, knowing pretty much nothing but about anything <laughs> I'm, I'm even doing the ukulele but I'm learning an instrument but it's funny when you learn a, an instrument yesterday I played a lot of it because I had the opportunity mm. but there's always a point when actually it's good to have several days of break and when you come back to it I know something is happening in your brain or your, your yeah, fingers yep. and your body and mind catch up to what you're trying to learn and they acquired it but they needed the break to process the information yeah. it's definitely something like that's something that we see within a lot of like very tricky magic ah that would be quite close yeah yeah like coin magic especially is coin magic is probably the single hardest of the fields to learn apart from like stage illusions where you just need giant boxes and, and vanishing assistance but coin magic requires such intense precision where you have to think very carefully about exactly how bent your little finger is and exactly how far apart your like middle finger and your first finger are 
but also whilst you're performing it you can't be thinking about those things they need to be <laughs> subconscious and so it is that you've got to sometimes just give it space for your body to like embed this in so you jump to the that was my next question or did you get into <laughs> from being a player to a game designer but you made that jump very early uh, so mm. what was the drive to do that and what was this very first game like I think in a, in a sense I've always been a storyteller I was having this discussion with my flatmate yesterday that the two of us have always considered ourselves storytellers in a way and one of the best and most effective ways of doing that is in like creating a world that's going to suit the sort of story I want to tell and I have long been of the opinion that although it's likely that someone has solved this problem somewhere it will take me less time to make a thing that suits my needs than it would for me to find it and so essentially I'd repurpose a thing that my friend and I wrote when we were about 15 which was a world called Imminent Futures which if you imagine that Saruman had been successful in felling all of the trees of Middle-earth what would a world like that afterwards look like and so it was kind of like heavily industrialized very very resource scarce but not post-apocalyptic almost a lot more like um I've not read Kim Stanley Robinson but what I understand of certain like some of like the stories about colonizing Mars is very much how do you have a, a functioning society and culture within that sort of space and because theft is the most effective form of of any form of storytelling in my in my opinion I then stole the plot of Metal Gear Solid and then just ran it through a, a science fantasy lens so a megalomaniac lizard man broke out a dwarf engineered self-aware mechanical robot thing <laughs> and then used it to try and destroy the last tree and what was really nice because it was like a horribly simple system it just used like a, a bunch of d6 and it was essentially designed that it would be straightforward enough that we could have our character sheets just on post-it notes it would take about 20 seconds to actually create a character you'd roll four dice you move each dice into whichever stat you want it to be in and then a few more of the points from that were that once you've then done that quite quickly because there were so few options for like you didn't have to read a big long list of here are the things you can do it then led to people saying okay i'm going to have this character and just come up with someone entirely new so a lot of the additional development of that was working out okay within this system this person wants to there was one one character who threw a an incredibly unlucky series of rolls which i think are about the odds of it happening i think must have been like i think like one in 1600 or something literally like failed four rolls in a row that should have been perfectly safe ones and so he'd managed to find a way to permanently sever his connection with the only the only essence on the planet that would grant magic and so he was like well i still want to create magic and so then the two of us were working together to work out okay what else could we do as part of the story so it was almost like a stock car i suppose in a way building together this this object and this thing that could be um that served the purposes that we needed it to do would run really quickly and really cheaply which meant we could play it in a pub and do it whilst getting very drunk that was the real starting point for that i'm terrible with categories but is that kind of osr-ish not in and of itself but definitely it, it aligned with a lot of the play styles and i think from designing that and then from seeing the first game that pulled me directly into the osr scene would have been into the odd which when I saw it was being spoken about it really spoke to me in terms of its simplicity and also it's got some really nice like certain parts of solutions are, are manufactured in a way to 
amplify the things that people like. So often in OSR games, the idea being that you don't build your character, you discover him through play. And often that is rolling random stats, which could be very bad. And if you're stuck with this character for twice the amount of time as everyone else, then you don't want to be someone who is literally half as effective as everyone. Or you... I mean, I, I just did that recently. I started my first small campaign of mm. Macchiato Monsters. Yes. And I roll very poorly on my stat, but I sort of expected it and embraced it. I was yes. like... So I called the character Moucheron, which means, uh, I don't know, call that a baby fly. Mm. So like, mm. like it's, a, it's a word <laughs> in French to say something that's going to be squashed very fast. And the joke is that I expect that character to die very fast. And if they don't, well, that's the joke which yes. is ongoing. Yes, exactly. The way that Into the Odds solves that in a way is that the, the worse your stats, the better your opening equipment is, which is a double-edged sword in a way because often you end up picking up something that is really easy to take from you because you are weak and you've got this big powerful <laughs> gun and everyone knows it <laughs> and so it just leads to some really like enjoyable play experiences i've always been like a slight stickler in the edge of what of what the osr wants to be because the vast majority of the people who design things for it who play within that within that space everything needs to come back to one of the original TSR Dungeons and Dragons games whereas my roots were fighting fantasy and like Troika is considered to be OSR aligned and that's never had any Dungeons and Dragons near it and so I, I quite like stirring the pot in that same way and being like okay it can be nostalgic in a sense of like and have a certain shared play culture rather than it having to follow a particular this is the lineage of how these games have come about. So although Imminent Futures wouldn't directly be OSR itself, it's certainly the fact that I was already playing in that style and then I found a label that applied to oh, here are other things where that's the expected culture was really quite interesting. Yeah.
worldly exhibit, young that style is present with very unique teach students, riot quiet people over numbers that lavishly claim kingdoms, justice, imaginary heirlooms, give freedom, everybody deserves a chance, attitude, bring character, dance and elevate fresh goals, higher instinct, justify kingly love, making nature open, but the question raises sun, time unifies validity, one less examples of your own. Rape of vendettas can take seriously. Praise queens properly. One night, moons laugh, knowledge justifies it. Back heads get back. Family birth divine celebration behind aftermath. Along this journey, at some point you made Ouroboros, which is explicitly OSR, at least it's in the title. Yes, yeah. What is Ouroboros? By the way, I was reading the sort of prologue description, mm. the idea of an adventurer who went deep, deep, deep and disappeared, and one day her face appears on all the reflective faces <laughs> in the world. I thought it was so evocative magic and a world changing event which at the same time is not it's not like the sun turns off mm. or the world is covered with fire it, it's this just information this <laughs> thing happens and everybody knows about it and it's got far-ranging consequences I yeah no, thanks for that i really like that as it that was me recycling a world that i built for a different system that eventually was just too much hassle for it to be thoroughly worth actually bringing about and playing out I was working for a while about producing a playing card version of like basic and expert Dungeons and Dragons. And although a lot of the design work that I'd done through it were really interesting and fun, in the long run, I was having to add on too many things so that somebody that wasn't me could play it. Mm -hmm. Like I could easily run it and people were enjoying it, but in the long run, I decided I couldn't be bothered to do all of those extra steps to get it to that other point. It's tricky that bit. Like, yeah. okay, I like this game, I like running it. Or do I make it so that people can play it without me being yes. around? I realize that. I mean, there's, there's probably some of the parts of the design that, like, I often think about a lot of my processing is almost like akin to, like, compost, where if I'm not going to use this as a style, it just becomes this big pool that I can eventually draw extra ideas from. And that's where I draw this, drew this story. So, Aruberos, one, it's named that because it's one of my favorite words to say. It's just very pleasant on the mouthfeel. And that's, that's because of all of the assonance in it. The plot of the actual story is almost... It's like the same reason why I'm quite a fan of like the Discworld novels, for instance, where they're often like quite small focus, but there's just quite often something which is going to be have a significant impact, and if it's left unchecked, very bad things could happen. But it isn't, we wake up one day and the whole world has ended, which actually is a, is a genre of stories I quite like as well. So I'm quite a fan of John Wyndham, and his Day of the Triffids literally starts with 
everybody in the country goes blind overnight and then giant plants attack because they've been here for a while and not sure what's going on. And although there's a big, essentially catastrophic event, it's relatively easy to keep on top of, comparatively. And so I think I've always, a lot of the fiction that I've read really influences that. There is story and play in this, and it doesn't have to be the Dark Lord is about to rise, you must go and kill him, you are the chosen heroes. Which I think there is definitely space for that sort of story, and I enjoy telling it sometimes. But there's definitely a sort of mindset like you see it in a lot with like 2000 AD comics the Judge Dredd ones where just everything is just a little bit bad and no one is very good but there's still enough of a compelling heroic story in a way and that's the sort of space I quite enjoy exploring that's really the best way for me to see a story ruined like especially when you see IPs which get extended with prequels and sequels as soon Mm. as you say actually it was all planned and this was the chosen one rather than someone who happened to be around mm, did yep. the thing to save the people it really really turns me off yeah. immediately it, it's a pity we don't have more of this of the okay that person rise to the challenge that's what made them exceptional in history yes. but actually it could have been anybody and they could have failed or succeeded but the idea of a common woman or man mm. who yeah, we rise up to the challenge and uh, yeah, it happened there. But uh, that's it. Yeah, and I think that's... It's something else that you see a lot within... Um, there's a phrase called like inside baseball where the amount of people that can spend time talking about like the intricacies of, oh, well, I want to roll a D12 versus 2D6 and I could have an entire hour-long conversation with some people about that all night. But there are certain things within like the OSR scene where it almost talks about stories being like picaresques where you don't have this grand hero you're just watching things that happen so like Don Quixote for instance is a story where you're just following some interesting people and seeing what happens and it is genuinely I think a sad thing that so much of modern like visual media does just default to there is a chosen one oh you didn't know it you're the chosen one now wow we planned it all along which I suppose people like hearing the same stories and there are other stories like we don't just have to watch the the big famous ones but it is really pleasant to see when ideas are like subverted or just things happen and i don't know i don't know where that's going because i imagine that will come back soon in some sense but i'm not sure where it's going to come from first yeah i don't know either it's Maybe from different countries, because, Mm. uh, I mean, I'm not consuming that much of them at the moment, but in anime, it's it's a bit more the case, I guess, than in the Western media. Mm. And what what really springs to mind is the comparison between the wizard with the scar on his head, Mm. who shall not be named, and uh, much better, in my views, and as far as I know, not written by terrible people, (laughs) <laughs> Little Witch Academia mm. in which the main character she's bad at magic <laughs> and she remains bad at magic but she does stuff and at no point it's like oh you were the one to balance out things and you have this big destiny yes. she's just yeah. a person there and the school needs money so they accept someone who's not proficient in magic or connected at all with magic and she struggles through but she she keeps going for it and she never there's never always always expecting watching that show 
there would be this turning point when oh she finally can fly or mm, she can finally yeah. can do this thing and spoiler alert it never really comes <laughs> uh, which is something you would expect in any other show so mm. I mean that's an example but uh, I mean even something like Dragon Ball which I prefer to Dragon Ball Z when you look mm. at it of course there's a main character who's over powerful but he's never described as someone who had prophecies no. around them and so on and there was never explained why he's that strong beyond the fact that I mean a little bit like an artist he likes fighting but, yeah. but he doesn't like hurting people but he does really like fight and he keeps training at it because that's what he likes to do yes, and he's yeah. the best and when something bad shows up he faces it and even at some point in the most interesting point of his history at some point he even says actually my son is way better than me mm, and, I, yes. it's, and it's oh, my yes. turn to say hey I'm not the best and after that they sort of retconned and changed that but yeah that, that, that point where with Son Goku saying okay actually it's Sengohan who's gonna defeat the big bad guy because I realized I'm way behind the curve compared yeah. to him that's a great story beat and yeah it's kind of forgotten in the way it's consumed and depicted <laughs> and where the story went after that Dragon Ball Z was the first anime that I properly started watching as as a lot of people my age in Britain in that it was on every day at the time you got home from school so it made it very easy to so did you have because I always a bit frustrated with that with Britons and people from North America mm. most of Europe from strongly French speakers quite a bit Italians Spaniards as well even Catalans mm. got a very very strong relationship to Japanimation much stronger than mm. than English speakers and we Japanimation which were European Japanese co-production way before Dragon Ball Z mm. and before Dragon Ball Z we had Dragon Ball yeah and people of my generation grew up on Dragon Ball and then we consumed Dragon Ball Z as the follow-up yeah and that's a bit when things sort of weighing down and people opened up to other Japanimation mm. and, and manga stuff but it's quite different the way you perceive and see Dragon Ball Z when you started with Dragon Ball. Yeah. Which was much more of this shonen progression of a, a character who's strong, yes. but struggles to become better. Yeah, no, definitely. And actually, I found that, although it was something that I watched because I enjoyed the stories that were being told, and it was um, there's something about hypercamp characterization that I've always been a fan of. What I did find, though, quite often was through like the same like programming structure, is that it was either like once or twice a week, like late night, there would be the more mature animes. So like that's how I got into things like Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star, which I'd probably still say is like my single favorite anime, where you do have that almost like more classical cinematic storytelling. Cowboy Bebop is it's different. It's quite close to a Western movie in terms yes. of structure. Yeah, and it feels like. Um, well, because it was almost not that long after that that I was then starting to look at classic films. So I think I saw, not long after actually watching Cowboy Bebop, was like the first time I'd seen Casablanca. Which Cowboy Bebop and Casablanca, there's something yes. which connects them. And I think it's that looking at the through line between them, which I think is quite an interesting thing. So I think it's interesting how the popularities of it so much are shaped by what it is that we're seen and given access to. And also the order in which we come across the story as well. Because in England, at least the, the times I was looking at it, Dragon Ball was aired after Dragon Ball Z. 
having been said, this was what came first. This wasn't like intended as a later on prequel. But it never hit quite the same widespread popularity. And I don't know if that's just because... I mean, really, as a, as a story, it works best if you start at the beginning of it and and carry on. It's the, the Lewis Carroll method of storytelling is begin at the beginning and make sure you stop at the end. I think there was also an effect of... So I recorded an episode uh, in Barcelona mm. and we discussed a bit about that. But the last time I, the situation was different and yes. one could travel, I went to Barcelona and I happened to be there on Carnival. So oh, wow. uh, that's another thing we have on the European continent, which we don't have in, in Britain mm. and the, the US. We celebrate the end of winter with the carnival, mm. often burn up stuff. We burn the winter <laughs> and uh, we celebrate the end of winter mm. as opposed to Halloween, which is uh, the fun. But yeah, that's beside the point. But I was so surprised. So it was amazing to walk through Barcelona. It was a school day. Mm. And a lot of playground from schools, you could see them from the public space. Mm, you can yeah. have a view there. And you'd see a lot of celebrations with little kids there. Oh, wow. And I was astonished. It looked like MSM Comic Con. Like with little <laughs> kids. They were all dressed up as different characters. Wow. And you had characters from European bande dessinée comic strip, like your Lucky Luke or your Tintin and mm. so on. And you had Spider-Man comics characters and you had lots of Japanimation characters mm. including stuff which are from my generation and I would not have thought that I would see oh my God, I wow. don't know 5 to 10 years old being into those things including Dragon Ball again yeah. seriously it was literally like Comic Con in the streets and in <laughs> those and I had a chat with the people there and they were explaining that Japanimation was one of the few things like Monty Python's by the way mm. which got dubbed in Catalan as soon ah. as they got their own TV channel yeah. after Franco passed away mm. and they became a democracy and it really shaped them and they've got this strong connection mm. with Japanimation and they keep showing them because they don't have they have quite a lot but they don't have that much stuff dubbed in Catalan yeah. so when you have kids and you want to show them stuff that's what they see and when you see Dragon Ball as a kid Mm. It's a little kid. Yes. And the little kid, (laughs) unlike US comics, will grow up. Mm. And you grow up with this character. So it's akin, again, like the wizard with the scar on his forehead. Mm. You grow up with the character, and when Sangoku is a teenager, and suddenly there's a girl coming for him, and trying to date him, and at some point he's going to marry, he's going to have children, and so on. You are growing up with him and you're, mm. you're going through maybe not at the same time but at least when it happens to him you're at the point when you realize actually this sort of things this is normal this is my yeah. Way. so yeah it's quite different than the flying in space and punching uh, each other's which is mostly Dragon <laughs> Ball Dragon Ball Z yeah there's there's not as much character development well actually no there, there is some character development I think the interesting character development in Dragon Ball Z is almost entirely through like Vegeta's arc or the villains in general. What I love with Dragon mm. Ball in general is this idea of foes become friends. Yes. Which keeps coming back. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think it's that, like, finding stories and seeing, like, well, things that are, are universally applicable and that, like, you recognize, okay, this is, this story is following the beats of life that we can see and recommend. I'm hoping that our current situation doesn't involve us having to fight off international fighting aliens, but... 
It's hard to tell. <laughs> These caps out here looking like the Clone Wars, bred from the same strain and nothing with no heart. Live up to the folklore is all a villain hopes for. I just want to watch the city burn with my cohorts on the track. All day, caught between two trains on the same railway, destined to collide from the get. And every time I make it out alive, I feel a little less dead. Better than to act fearless for appearance. But hey, do what you gotta do to feel different. They set up a new curfew, I set back another. Don't threaten me for anything less than what I got. Your king's a coward, he's calling in the drone. So I called in seven homies from Kamon. Slayed the whole cast, canceled the episode. We only paid a death back event sevenfold. Thank God the second they think we're gone, that's when we take the shirt. Hit hard like the Death Star while they bring them out. The moment's here and this is right about now. So are you waiting for the breakup to say it out loud? The train's leaving town, roll mine, hustle up. Hop on to stay with these eggshell walking give them. They fear us for our lack of liability. The size of our dreams and our unabashed willingness to run into oncoming traffic to pursue it. Watch me do what you're not doing. Embracing danger as an immediate family member. I am the message and the messenger. One day the sun will stop shining and you'll have to live without The city will find someone to blame, but you know who put it out. The planet will fall into widespread panic and I'll watch quietly with the keys to your faith and someday I'll turn it back on. But now, 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 In my veins, I'm essentially young Baby, I'm straight out the cryo Just because my team can manipulate fire Y'all wanna go ahead and call them pyros Well, I don't have light, so turn it up right slow And take the high road before they put the katana to your pie hole You do good as losing sight And unless your first name's T'Challa, you need to lose the tights You prove me right every time I come around Acting like rules still apply to my block They ask me when, I say what about now It's a ship right off the old Robocop Dread John Spartan, the protagonist, Mark and I I ain't buying, I'm just window shopping targets, soft points, the family members, they settle for good but never aim to do it better. One day the sun will stop shining, and you'll have to live without it. The city will find someone to blame, but you know who put it out. The planet will fall into widespread panic, and I'll watch quietly with the keys to your faith, and someday I'll turn it back on. Another thing I really like, with, especially the original Dragon Ball, and it's my criticism of other shonen things which are more recent, mm. it's the struggle and training aspect. You really see yes. the character train to become better. They are strong, but not as strong as another one. Mm. And they work towards becoming better. And that's something, something I somewhat remember with the X-Men. Sometimes you mm. see them training, but less and less so. And yeah, that I don't really see in stuff like One Punch where, well, okay, he's got the fruit and then develop abilities and then mm. to share will they become stronger, yeah. which was a bit the case of Senseiya, but still Senseiya, you saw them training 
And again, that's something in Western media you don't see that much. Uh, again, it's this chosen one yeah. thing. It's like, oh, this one is wrong! Rather than... I mean, I'm really enjoying Invincible at the moment. There's a bit of training. Oh, nice. But it's pretty much... Yeah, you're the one because you're a hybrid and mm. true uh, whatever. That's it. You're you're super strong. Yeah. Or Ray, that's why I didn't like. I love the cast. I love the concept of the character, but I didn't like the treatment of characters in the new trilogy for Star Wars. Mm, this idea, yeah. oh Ray, she's great pilot, great Jedi. She can do everything. Day one. No, Luke's kind of sucked. He was so bad. He was so bad. The amount of times he got shot by that tiny, tiny little ball when he had the mask on. (laughs) The the first fly of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, but but I think that's the thing. You don't often see those training parts. In fact, the only big popular example I can think of is years old, but it's like, is is Rocky, the Sylvester Stallone film, where no other film I can think, like at least within my kind of like, immediate awareness is that focused on training to get better and in seeing the process rather than just being good and like you might have 30 seconds of a montage in a film so it's like here are the things that train you up and still coming short yes in rocky is still i mean spoiler for rocky <laughs> people have had a lot of time to see it <laughs> okay if you want you can stop now and go watch rocky <laughs> He, he does not succeed in mm. the, despite his efforts and everything, but uh, the journey is still is still great. R- there are a couple of characters, especially from Sylvester Stallone, which are really weird like that, like Rambo mm. or Rocky, yep. who started really working class, underdog, confronted to a system, and their character got picked up by popular culture and became the opposite of their yes. starting point yeah it's re- i find it really interesting to see how and also like i'm i'm widely of the opinion that stories are going to shift for whatever audiences want to like see and respond to them and it isn't that when a sequel comes out the initial film is then overwritten and removed and i think there's a certain strength in being able to like let things lie and it's just like well we've told this story let's tell a different story now if we want a story that feels like this but of course so many decisions are made by production executives who are like well we can guarantee a certain amount of money from this so let's do this way i think disney is a particular falls into this trap quite a lot at the moment where they're like we know these products are going to give us money so we're going to make more in this field everyone's sort of doing that i think disney is the obvious one but Mm. i'm a fan of star trek and Mm. you know on one end as a fan I both agree and disagree with the idea, okay, let it go. Mm. In the sense that, okay, sure, let it go what original Star Trek was and don't be, certainly don't be mean or unpleasant to, mm. to fans of other stuff and new fans. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I understand the logic behind it, but mm. the problem is that the copyright holder are not letting it go either. And at yeah. some point, it's the case with Star Trek, but it's very clear also with, with Star Wars. When I tried running Star Wars the last time, I was mm. like, okay, feet under the table, Star Wars D6, I, I, that was my oh, favorite amazing. game. Yeah. I know the rules, uh, or I, I fudge what I need to fudge. And Star Wars, everybody knows Star Wars. It's a game, you're in Star Wars. Explanations, done. Yeah. And you show up and suddenly you realize, well, actually, no, because the IP's been stretched so much towards different direction. Yes. That when you say it's Star Wars, now I found on the hardware running it uh, somewhat recently, 
And now when I introduce, okay, I'm going to run Star Wars. So here's what Star Wars. First mm. of all, Star Wars. I'm running Star Wars. It's my own canon. Don't take that as the actual criticism of your taste or the taste. But that's my canon. We're going to play within it. Yeah. That implies the original trilogy and uh, maybe the books, but this, that didn't happen or it's not mentioned or mm. it's your head canon but it's not mentioned here yeah. the prequels didn't happen the sequels were way before that so it's not happening there's not going to be a lot of Jedi and technology is retrofuturistic so it's World War 2 in space I, and mm. I need to make all those explanations because it stopped being okay this is Star Trek there's one movie or maybe a few seasons and it's clear in terms of concept yes yeah. and this is Star Wars this is the original movies it's contained and people can agree on I like these three mm. movies or I don't like these three movies. Yes. As yeah. soon as you make things rather than make so you make the Phantom Menace and suddenly okay we like the Phantom Menace I don't like the Phantom Menace it's fine we curb it but there's a third one and a fourth one mm. rather than say I'm a fan of these other things called the Phantom Menace which is not connected yes. with Star Wars and people it's from, similar, and yeah. it will feel the same. Yeah, and, and people from that generation, they grew up with it, and can be the thing they like, Yeah, and it's fine. We are sort of forced into the same room, and yeah. for, for money reasons, not for artistic reasons, and or even without consistency, because I find at least Marvel's has got this, because they, they're sort of a... Head they, they've got a big plan It's still all consistent. Along. There are yes, people yeah. making it consistent. But Star Wars or Star Trek, they are not consistent and you are forced in the same rooms with people and you're told, oh, you're all Star Trek fans or you're all Star Wars fans or you're all, uh, I don't know, fans. And you're like, actually, we disagree on a lot of stuff. So many more things. It doesn't have to be, it shouldn't have to be a bad thing. But why are we forced in the same room when clearly we actually don't like the same thing? It's just you keep Mm. forcing that umbrella on the thing oh it's the same thing and you should all like it yes. and buy it and it's a bit unfair also I find that you got big corporations I mean again there are fans behaving terribly it's very bad Yes, but I find companies like Disney or Paramount are trying to have it both ways by saying okay we're using this IP because we know it's successful and gonna make money out of it and then when fans complains are like oh fans are, are bad they cannot be satisfied <laughs> yeah, you try to milk those fans. Yes. That's your starting point. So you cannot at the Choose same time one. milk <laughs> them and then tell them they have no say over the thing they already love. So yes, yeah, exactly. So try I know John Carter of Mars or, mm. or Starship Troopers, which I watched recently and I still find it very interesting. Yes, try yep. different stuff and then you cater to different tastes. But yeah, if you do Picard and Picard is the, the wielding phasers mm. and uh, pulling out eyeballs out of heads uh, <laughs> and I'm a TNG fan and I'm like well I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that yes it doesn't really fit and like although you could imagine there may have been some form of character development that would have led to that where we're not shown it and suddenly it's like oh actually no this isn't a character I recognise you've just given him the same mask it's almost similar within the wider fields of like science fiction and fantasy many many years ago would have been shelved literally next to each other I mean they still are in bookshelves but they were considered essentially all of this like fantastical writing and so if you look at a lot of the early Dungeons and Dragons things you've got elves and dwarves over here but then they go into a cave which is actually a spaceship 
and it's full of aliens with ray guns. And that's because in like in the 70s, that's how fantasy fiction was read. Like you would read a science fiction book straight after a sword and sorcery book. And I think because and it's it's hard to tell exactly what's driven it and if it's just a general trend. But if the habit is to zoom down into increasingly specific, like the more precise we can be, the more similarities we'll find between people. Then actually you'll just you'll end up finding more splits and like, well, okay, I like this about X. I like this about Y. I think Star Trek is one of the things that does it quite well because each different series feels different and exists within the same continuity but doesn't feel it's trying to replace or replicate the other ones beyond saying we're telling a story here in this perspective which is why I think weirdly my Star Trek is Voyager because that's the one that I watched most of despite the fact it's it's really Voyager like D&D 4 yes, think yes. it's sort of making of comeback, <laughs> a comeback of people coming uh, around the corner and saying actually actually we've been quite unfair towards that yeah, thing yeah. I personally like Voyager I think it would would be my number three maybe number two favorite mm. Star Trek series I yeah. think it's very TOS TNG sort of on par and uh, some movies floating around there and, and then Voyager because yeah it wasn't without flaws but at least it speaks to me in terms of yes. what it's yeah. aiming for it was it was definitely it almost seemed like a, like a bunch of executives had thrown like a load of darts at the wall and said right where are we going to be cool what's the main plot call what about this and so all of those were almost like seem fairly arbitrarily decided but they were then still treated with the same well here's how we're going to tell this same story again just with this different field which i think that's the kind of repetition i really like because you've got the we are off exploring something this is the team that we have and what we see despite the fact that it's a regular story in which you're able to follow along with it's more of a these are the people going on this quest rather than only one true ship can go and learn and gather this thing. I think it just it suits a lot of the way in which we like to receive stories and we like to think about things. Like familiarity and surprise are key components on how we like playing things, like how we like playing games, how we like understanding tales. I mean, I think it's half the reason why it's very rare that you'll get people to agree to playing games like role-playing games without dice. Because the surprise of, well, we don't know what's going to happen at this exact point, but we only know it's not going to happen when we're rolling the dice. It's that weird split between we want to be surprised, but not too much, and so we're happy to be surprised in this one specific case, which I think some stories do that really well, and others merge far too many things together all at once and claim it's the same thing. This episode included To the Wind by Alamod. Future Vision by Dread Pirate Roberts Villain with a Thousand Faces by Toussaint Morrison and of course Solta Ofrengo or theme song by Bonded Oral. You can download for free all these songs on the free music archive where you'll find many other excellent songs which I recommend you to browse and share around. Thanks for listening to this episode. It's difficult to meet people at the moment with COVID and so on. And things were going well with Sean, so, you know, I didn't feel like cutting short our discussion and instead we recorded enough for two episodes. So 
Sean will be back next month with the second and final part of this little chat that we had in a nice corner of Urn Hill on a rather windy day. Uh, yeah, all lo- oh, I forgot. All logo is designed by Rolling Cans, and you can find it on apparels, notebooks, stickers, and even face masks on our T Public store, as well as a, a couple other designs by Rolling Cans and a couple of my own. If you want to make a purchase to support me and you want to spark joy with your friends, I recommend you go check out the release itch.io store where you will find my very first game, Paris Gondo, the life-saving magic of inventoring. A game which starts where most other games end. At the very end of the dungeon, after having defeated the big boss, you have found some wondrous loot, and it's time to decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to throw away, not only from this newly acquired loot, but also from your starting inventory. And to find out later whether or not it will help you survive on the way out of the dungeon and somehow help you have a stimulating and invigorating experience for the rest of the days of your adventurer. It's my very first foray in game design, but people who playtested it had a lot of fun, so I recommend you go get it. Currently, it's a text-only edition. It's on sale for $5. And there will be a new edition with art, a better layout by Francita Soto. The art should be by Woody Hartley. But if you buy the text-only edition, you will make that happen faster. And the cost of that first purchase will be deducted from any future purchase of the new edition. So you should really not hesitate to head there. And you will find also the store of Sean. You can buy his own game over there on itch.io. And if you don't want to Google to find all of that, you can look up the description of this episode where you will find direct links to Sean's work as well as my own and to all the games that we name dropped in this interview so it's all there for you to click and go to you will find also there our D-Rollist Twitch channel which you could follow to see live Cafe Rollist interviews you could also find the link to our YouTube channel where I upload all Cafe Rollist stuff uh, you could also click on the link to our Patreon which helps me finance stuff especially uh, I've been unemployed for a while now uh, hopeful crossing fingers Got job interviews very soon. But uh, yeah, in the meantime, more than ever, your financial support helps me keep the lights on for the release show and yeah, produce more stuff in the best conditions possible. You can also support the show with reviews on iTunes or Podchaser or any app of your choice. Those are a huge encouragement whenever they happen. Been a while since I last had one. And if you write me one, I will read it on the show with my very atypical accent. So feel free to put in complicated words in there. And otherwise, just keep on listening, really. Uh, Subscribe, that's great. And just listen. Just seeing the numbers from people downloading the episodes and listening to them, it's a huge encouragement each month and it's been it's been picking up so uh yeah that's great and if you like also feel free to drop me a line via twitter about what you thought about this episode just just share the episode with any way you can with whoever you can 
That's the best way to support any podcast, really. I try to do it with other podcasts that I listen to. Each time I listen to something, I share a tweet that, hey, I'm listening to you. Be happy, podcasters. So feel free to do that with my own. And, feel f- and I highly encourage you to do that, really, with any podcast. So that's it. I already said what we would happen next month. Sean is back. I got a lead for the next person I will interview, but uh, I will tell more about that next month. And hopefully by then, I will have recorded it so I can let you know about this. Oh, by the way, if you want information in advance and about everything we do, I highly recommend also that you subscribe to the released newsletter, which is managed by Persephilia herself, and you will find in there everything happening with the release, the, the game release, the episodes which were recorded and are being edited, live events when those will be back, streams, participations to other shows, all of that is listed in the monthly newsletter and on top of that Persephilia always put in a little personal word about what is going on in our life as gamers and uh, yeah, I think it's quite, it's quite nice and we got a hundred subscribers, I think, something like that and it would be great to have more of you in there. So that's it. See you next month. Thanks for, for listening once more. And in the meantime, have good games. Nós é tipo bem Jesus, todo mundo a gente ama Ainda mais se for gatinha, rola até levar pra cama A gente topa tudo, sapatão e bigodudo Na hora do piriri, cai em mim outra vesti Vai batuque! Rolê! 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 Solta o frango e vem com a gente Rolê! Rolê! Mr. Nimoy, I came as soon as I heard what happened centuries ago. I can't believe your show was banned. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. You know, 1966, 79 episodes, about 30 good ones. Oh, really? I've done too many things to remember one particular TV series.